But if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, We'll be looking at the first 13 verses here. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No less there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So you first read that, and you think, okay, well, that's a good story about a wedding and a wedding feast and that type of thing. But I think you you start to get the meaning of, of what it's really getting into when you look at verse 13, when it says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And again, it's a warning to each and every one of us. And as we go through the parable here, we'll see what different things represent and and how that plays out. But um, as we see in verse 1, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So if, if you look at this parable, it's really based on like the customs of the wedding customs of Palestine. The wedding day was filled with entertainment during the day so they basically had celebrations during the day the wedding feast would take place at night and the bride was always taken to the uh, or normally taken to the bridegroom's house he would not be there at the time and and uh, she would wait for his return and so what would happen is uh, there would be like the bride or the, the friends of the uh, the bride would go out when the message come out that the bridegroom was coming and they would escort him back to the house and then the marriage ceremony took place and that type of thing. And in this case, it was the ten virgins, as we, as we see here, which was probably friends of the bride, which was going out to meet the bride and to bring him back in. So in this case, uh, the, the virgins, what do you think they would represent in this parable, if we were to relate it to us today, or if you heard Jesus telling the story. It would be us. It represents those in the kingdom, and we're in the kingdom, right? We're in the church. So that's what it's representing. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So it kind of 
kind of helps relate it there. What do you think the lamp, the lamps represent in this parable? And that's very true. It does represents our, it represents our faith. And we can't have a, a faith that goes out, can we? We got to have a faith that endures to the end um, if we want to be part of that, that grand homecoming in the sky. And so the, the coming of the bridegroom is the second coming of the Lord, and that's what it represents there. So let's look at Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews 9.28, and I'm using the New King James here. It says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And if you have a full faith, you're eagerly awaiting him, right? You, there's no fear in his return. But, you know, if you don't have that faith, maybe you're not so eager for him to come back. Maybe you don't care. Maybe it doesn't register with you. But that's something, um, as we said, we have to have a full faith. We have to be ready for that. Our, our light, our lamp has to be full so it burns bright all the time. Any uh, questions or comments? So let's look at verses, going back to the parable in Matthew 25, 2 through 4, and I'll read those again. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took oil with them, but the wise, and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So they had spare, right? So we can see five were wise, five were foolish. The extra oil, again, goes back and represents the active life, the faith, Jeff, like you were talking about. They were, they were basically, they had advanced preparation, right? And that, that's what it's representing there, that we always have to be prepared um, in our Christian walk. We can't let our lamp go out. We have to be prepared to the end. Let's look at Ephesians 2.10. In fact, uh, Scott, I'll ask you to read that. And then uh, Janice, if you'll read James 2.14. Okay. So talking about in having a prepared faith, preparing ahead of time, if we have a faith, that faith should do what? What's that, Mike? Be active. And if it's active, what are you producing? You're producing works, right? And not that we can work ourselves into heaven, but if we have a, a true faith and we have a love of God, to be an active faith, it is going to be a, a faith that is tied with works because not only should we be concerned about us and us going to heaven, but we should have a work that helps others uh, and helps spread the gospel so that they too may go to heaven. And I think that's what it's talking about here when it's talking, talking about advanced preparation. And then let's look at verse 5. <clears throat> verse 5 says, But while the bridegroom was delayed, they slumbered and slept. And I think what's being represented here when they talked about the bridegroom was delayed and they sl slumbered and slept is talking about uh, the de delay in Christ in his coming back for his second coming here. 
and that's represented by the span of time from when we know he ascended into heaven until when we know that he'll he'll come back and uh we talked a good bit about this in our last lesson we were talking about the parable of the talents i was thinking about that as i was going through reading this and it was talking about after a long time the lord of those servants come back and settled accounts with them and the same is true with Christ's second coming. He's going to come back and settle accounts with each and every one of us. And we obviously don't want to be like that one talent man who didn't have any preparation for his servant's return. All he did was go and bury what he had. And when I think back to what we're talking about, that's not a faith that produced works, was it? It was a pretty much a dead faith because he buried what he had and did nothing with it. And then also in John fourteen three, and we read this last week as well, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So we know that Jesus Christ is alive and well. He's in heaven at the right hand of God, preparing a place for each and every one of us. But there's no guarantee that we're going to get there. It's up to us. God's done his part. He's provided that plan of salvation but it's up to each and every one of us to have that active faith, to have that adequate preparation so we can be part of that place that he has prepared for us. Any questions or comments? Jeff? Okay. In the sleep of the virgins, I think here, represents death. And only the bodies, if we think about it, sleep in death. Um... This body that I have, this temple here, is going to be destroyed. But what's not going to be destroyed? The soul. And so the soul doesn't sleep. Um, a couple of more verses. Uh, Jeremy Daniel 12.2. And Jamie, I'll give you an easy one in the New Testament. It's only a few pages over. Uh, Matthew 27.52. Okay, so I think what we see here... It says, some shall, it says, you know, waking up some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. There's no in-between here. It's one or the other, right? And only, it's not that only those that are saved are going to be raised. Everybody's going to be raised. But um, it's a matter of, again, going back to that active faith um, will determine our will determine our destiny and in Matthew twenty seven fifty two. And then if we go on to verse six and it says at midnight a cry was heard, Behold the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And I think the midnight hour that is being talked about here represents Christ's return. Does anybody think they know when Christ is going to turn or return or does anybody know? We don't know, do we? And that's what it's rep- representing here. It's kind of a, an unexpected, uh, surprising time. Um, Cheryl, if you'll read Matthew twenty-five thirteen, and then Frank, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. So that's Matthew 25, 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. Okay. So not only do we not know the hour, we don't know the day. We, we have, bless you. We have no idea when he's coming back. Okay. So if we knew when the thief was coming, and I know we've talked about this many times, 
I think we'd all be sitting on the couch with the shotgun aimed at the front door, right? Um, but that's not the way a thief comes. He tries to catch you off guard. And um, that's the way that Christ, Christ's uh, return is going to catch many people. It's going to catch them off guard. You know, if we're prepared, it really it shouldn't matter when he comes back. He could come back at any time, and we should be happy about it. We should be ready for it. But if, if we're not prepared, it's definitely going to catch us off guard, and, uh, and we're not going to be happy with the result there. And one more verse here that kind of relates. Jim, if you'll read Second Peter 3.10 for us, or he can probably quote it. So. Okay. So again, we see a reference here to um, the Lord's coming compared to like a thief in the night. And then if we, um, in verse 6, when it says, and at midnight a cry was heard, the cry is the great shout which will call forth the meeting um, with Christ. And Tony, and if I can get you to read 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Okay. So it's not going to be quiet when he comes back, is it? It's, it says he's coming with a shout when he does return. And that's what's represented here when it's talking about the bridegroom as well coming back. So let's, let's, any questions or comments before we move on from there? And we'll look at the next three verses, which are 7 through 10. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough of us, enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding. And this is key here, and the door was shut. Because once the door was shut for the wedding feast, it wasn't, it wasn't reopened. Um, if you weren't in, you missed out. So all those virgins who arose, or the ten that arose there, represents the resurrection from the dead. And when you think about that, five arose prepared, five arose what? Unprepared, right? But they all rose. John five twenty eight and 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So it says all will rise. Again, we all have to stand before the judgment seat of God. That kind of flies in the face of millennial, millennialism, if I can get that out, which was brought out by a commentary, one of the commentaries I looked at there, which what does millennium what, what does that represent? thousand years, right? It's Latin for a thousand years is basically what millennium means. So, and it's a belief held by some Christian de- denominations that there will be a, a golden age or a paradise on earth which Christ will reign for a thousand years prior to the final judgment of the future eternal state. And um, 
that's really based on Revelation chapter 20, I believe it is, the first six verses there. But when it's talking about they went into the, the feast and the door was shut, and as we'll see here, there's no getting in. There's no thousand-year reign to let people get in. It's when the door is shut, what's done is done. And then it was also pointed out in one of the commentaries I was looking at, it brought out the Catholic, Catholic doctrine of purgatory that teaches that the living can make preparation for the dead, which is also a, a false doctrine. And I see Jeff shaking his head, and I know he's got a, a bit of that background, but, um, and we study this when we study the different denominations, but what they think basically purgatory is it's like an intermediate state that you can go to after you die before the final judgment. But, you know, really death is the, the dividing line. Once you cross death, there's no going back. There's nothing I can do for you. There's nothing you can do for me. At that point, either you had an active faith that adequ adequately prepared you for the after afterlife or you didn't. So death is really a defining line there, which also goes into um, the belief taught by the Mormons, which is baptism for the dead. And I think, as I've told you before, um, I've had some personal experience with this because my dad's side of the family is Mormon, and, um, and, and it's more, I guess... Uh, he he would I guess was born in in a Mormon with with the Mormon background when he was growing up converted over to the church, but then my grandmother was never baptized into the Mormon church, which they do teach you need to be baptized to go to heaven. And not to get off on the Mormons here, but uh, when my grandmother passed away, my dad's aunt, which was her sister, was baptized for her so that hopefully she would be saved. And so. Um, and then they, they say, well, it's up to that person that's died to either accept it or not accept it. And then I think about that, too, and I think about, well, if you've already experienced death, you know, why would you not accept it? So I can't understand why there would be a decision to, to accept it or not accept it if that was even the case. So you can see, and not to make fun of anybody's beliefs or anything, but, man, what is that based on? You just don't see it. Yes, Jeff. Yeah, and our number one responsibility in life is to make sure we get to heaven. You know, second is to try to take as many people with us as we can, but I can't let other people prevent me from going to heaven, um, whether it's family, enemies, or whoever, friends it may be, they can't become a stumbling block, and that's exactly what would have happened here, and that's what's being represented. If they would have shared that oil, they would not have had a lamp that would have endured to the end, would it? It would have went out just like the other five, and then nobody nobody would have had light, right? And that's, that's exactly what it's representing here. And I think one commentary that I read pointed it out well and uh, never really thought about it this way, but they said, think about it like this. And this going, is going back to what Jim said. God 
doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. And what they were trying to point out because of that is because I'm a Christian doesn't mean my kids are going to be saved. And that's what it's making reference to when it says God doesn't have grandchildren. I can't do anything for them but to help guide them along the way. But they got to come to a point in their life whether to accept God or not to accept God. It is an individual responsibility that each and every one of us has to prepare for. Just because my parents are Christians doesn't mean I'm going to be saved. Um, you can't ride the coattails of anybody into heaven. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, Everybody thinks I'm always going to have more time. I can do this later. I just need to get some things in my life straight now before I do it. That's putting your faith in yourself, too. You can't say, I need to do this before I'm baptized or before I get right with God. Get right. Let him help you. Um, that's, that's the thing. I mean, he takes us just like we are, and then let him help us to grow and to get that faith that endures. Yes. That's a great example, and I don't know if you guys could hear that, but he said it made him think about Noah and the ark. When the door was shut, there was probably a lot of people that wanted on that ark, wasn't there? The more it rained, the more the water come up. But once the door is shut, the door is shut. Again, that represented death, right? Glad I'm keeping you awake this morning. Okay. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a dividing line, yes. It's not the water outside the boat that causes it to sink. It's the water that... You let in, right? And that's why you can't open that door. Very good point. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And not sure if you could hear that in the back again, but he was talking about that's what many denominations try to do is open up the door and let things in to be more attractive and to get more people in. But you know, it's not about the quantity that's in the church. It's about the quality. It's the quality of the Christian life you're, you're living. And, um, and again, if it, if it was just about baptizing people, you know, we could get a couple of big guys and we could probably go out and tackle people and, and dip them in a river and, and call them saved, you know, because all you got to do is be baptized, right? Or the same thing, if we let anything go in the church, if it's just about getting people in the door, you know, let's do those programs. But it's not about what happens here so much, which it is, but in a sense, it's more about what happens the other six days a week when we're out living the Christian life. How are we living then? What are we doing? Do we have that enduring faith when we live our Christian life? And, um, you know, we've talked about different religions as well, but and there is no second chance, and that's very true with, like, Jehovah Witnesses. They also teach a second chance to get right with God. And uh, there, there is no second chance. There was no second chance for those virgins that had to go by oil to come back in. And there won't be no second chance for us either. We either get it right the first time or we, we don't get it right. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, you talk about that in Salt Lake, um, which, you know, I go there quite a bit for work. 
And my dad's brother just recently moved back. Him and his wife, their retired school teachers, were there on a Mormon mission, and they were actually working in the family history library. So a lot of times, which I was two hours north of Salt Lake, um, hour and a half or so, so I would come back and stay in Salt Lake a lot of times that night, fly back the next day. So I would go have dinner with him and his wife, and he took me and toured me all that. And their mission was actually working in the family history library for three years. So he traced our family back, um, starting with my dad, six generations back, all the way to a guy named Patrick Sparrow, who went from England to Ireland and was the first of our family to come to the States. And they landed in South Carolina and then eventually to the eastern part of North Carolina, which is where all my family is now. To go along with what you're saying, they know it to a T when it comes to family history for that very same reason. So I've, yeah, experienced that very much firsthand. And not to, I guess we're going to get off track here, and I want to finish, but uh, it is interesting stuff, though, and it, it is kind of neat to have that, though, um, because now I can pass it along to my kids and that type of thing. But uh, unfortunately, bless you. <laughs> but unfortunately, that kind of information is not going to get other people into heaven if they were not Christians when they passed having that information is not going to change anything. Um, and the fact that the door would be closed at death, as we, the last parable I want to do in this quarter is the, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus because I think everything that we're studying is kind of building up to that point, right? And I think it's going to be, and I'm sure we're most all familiar with it, but that's, that's very much pointing out that death is the dividing line there. Once you get there, there's no going back. And if there was ever a question, if there's a second chance, it's pointed out in that parable. There, it is not. So that was my next verse. Thank you very much. <laughs> yep. Mr. Efficiency. And it is. It, that's, that's, very, that's a very good point. Glad you brought that out. But that it is. Once you die into judgment. Then it says, Afterwards, the virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And that's in verses 11 and 12. Let's, um, let's look at Matthew seven twenty three. Very much in line with what we're talking about in this parable here. It says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, again, that dividing line is there. And then I think as we look at verse 13, going back to what we've been talking about, it very well points out what we need to do. Watch, therefore, for you know neither today nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And, you know, it's, it's a point that he could come today, he could come tomorrow. We need to be prepared. We don't know. How many people die that plan for their death? Not many. Not, not too many. So we always need to be prepared because we don't know when we're going to be called back as well. So in summary, I think as we look at the lessons 
that we can learn as we talked about this parable. Those in the kingdom have been purified from the world, represented by like the virgins in this parable, and ought to conduct themselves accordingly. So we have to conduct ourselves like we have been purified because we have when we've come in contact with the blood of Christ when we've been baptized. And again, as we said, our faith must be accompanied by Christian works. It's not just about having a faith, but it's about a faith that produces works. Again, Christ's coming will come at an unexpected time. There will be many people unprepared when he does come. And when you think about all the people that have tried to predict it, people have sold everything they've had and sat back and waited on it based on these predictions, and they're disappointed. We can't, we can't predict when Christ is going to come back. I think a big thing that we've really talked about here, all preparation is personal. I can't prepare for you. You can't prepare for me. We need to realize each and every one of us have an individual responsibility to prepare. And it's only because we're prepared that we're going to be saved. There's nothing that anybody else can do for us. And it's not nearly enough to be in the kingdom, but we've got to stay in the kingdom. And we've got to be prepared. And we see that with the case of the ten virgins. Five were prepared, five were not prepared. And then the five that were not prepared were locked out. We must constantly watch for his arrival and to live. And then the last point here kind of goes back to a parable we've talked about as well. To live in an unprepared state is to act the part of a fool. And when I think about that, I think of a rich young fool, Luke 12, 20 through 21, and I'll finish up with this. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose things will these be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So think about that. No matter what we have here on earth, it can't buy our way into heaven. And we don't know when we're going to have to part with it. It shouldn't be a hindrance from helping us to get to heaven. So any questions or comments as we finish up here? Thanks for your time.